and welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Today we got my friend and brother, somebody who I have a great deal of respect for, although he went to a school that I dare not name. I won't talk about that. Uh, but none other than one of the best tight ends that ever played football, one of the most thoughtful leaders that you will come across, Benjamin Watson. What's going on, my brother? How are you? Hey, man. It is an honor to join you, as we talked about before we got the recording. And, uh, you know, I got some love for your Gamecocks, too. I am a South Carolina native, Rock Hill, South Carolina. So I have respect for the for the Gamecocks, although I believe red and black. Uh, let me Before we get started, how did you end up? down there in Athens of all did you get lost on the way (laughs) (laughs) actually actually I I took a detour because I started at Duke University actually I didn't know that yeah 1999 ended up uh graduating Northwestern High School went to Duke University for a year and then decided that um I loved the school uh but the football was rough uh and so uh I saw this school Georgia that was doing great things with their tight ends and so I ended up transferring to Georgia man but uh, South Carolina, they didn't want to throw the ball to the tight end ever. So it was it was a difficult decision, but I, I couldn't go there. <laughs> That's not difficult if they're not going to give you the rock. When you go <laughs> Look, we start each one of our shows by having our guests walk us through the arc of uh, their careers. And I think most folk remember who follow the show, remember your career at Georgia and in the NFL. But no one really knows about your life post-football. Walk us through the arc of your career, your post-football career. And how you balance all those things you're doing, plus being a husband and a father. Well, that that post football arc is still beginning. I, I retired in uh, 20, 2019 was my last season, so I'm three years out. I'm still I still think I'm in like a transition. To be honest with you, um, after playing 16 years in the NFL, it's it's, it's kind of different, you know, kind of reimagining and and realizing who you are outside of the game. Although we talk about that all the time. Um, since then, I've been working with SEC Network. Uh, so covering college football uh, on Saturdays during the college football season. I'm in studio in Charlotte uh, every Saturday uh, with a couple of the guys covering all the SEC games for the network and ESPN. Um, also work for an organization called Human Coalition. Uh, we are a, a telecare, telehealth uh, organization, a pro-life organization based out of Dallas, but we provide uh, direct services to pregnant women. We also engage in uh legislation on the federal and state level um, on that issue. I've been with them for a couple of years, um, writing a book, as we'll talk about, um, and also trying to parent these uh, seven kids, my brother. So uh, ages 14 to four, uh, my wife, Kristen, and I've been married for going on 18 years in July. Yeah, we got uh, we, it. We got there it. it is. There it is. Yes, yes sir. We, uh, we met at, at UGA. And so it's, it's a new stage of life for us. Um, seven kids, Mike? Seven kids, bro. Let me let me just tell you, I, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about this, but let me just tell you vasectomies are a thing. And I I'm a true believer. <laughs> hey, I, I am on. I am retired now, too. I, I, I'm, a, I'm on the vasectomy team, too. Um, but I'm just going to warn you. And this hasn't happened to me, but I have had some friends. Uh, Bakari, who have been on the vasectomy team and have got little surprises uh, years down the road. So I don't know if there needs to be like a checkup every now and then. Yeah. Uh, you know, you, you because I, I, call my doctor. Hey, seven, <laughs> seven is the number of completion and perfection. And so we are good. All right. I, I mean, I, you're probably talking about your, your good brother, Antonio Cromartie. That's what he said. But we'll keep, <laughs> we'll keep, we'll keep He's one. On. He is one. <laughs> Look, before we get to um, before we get to your new book, I want to dig a little bit deeper into the Human Coalition because we're going to have a great discussion today, a respectful discussion on this platform about something that's more nuanced than people make it out to be. But dig into the Human Coalition 
talk about your role as VP of strategic relationships and why do you think an organization like this is so necessary to them? Yeah, my my role with them. So I've been, uh, you know, kind of a supporter of theirs for um, for for quite some time. Um, heard about them while I was still playing and kind of served on the advisory board uh, here and there. But since I came out of the league, I uh, wanted to get more involved and really understand their work. Um, and you mentioned the word nuance, kind of the nuance of their work. Um, and, and so my role is basically connecting with uh, supporters. It is uh, spreading the word about the organization. It's engaging uh, with organizations and individuals who uh, are like-minded. And why is the work important? I, I think the work is important because there are unplanned and unexpected pregnancies. That's something that we don't, we're not going to get around. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately for many of the women who call our call center in Dallas and we have connections with local pregnancy resource centers where we can send them for services is 76% of them say that they would prefer to parent if their circumstances were different. And a lot of the times those circumstances, if you talk to them, they'll say it's because of employment, it's because of housing, uh, it's because of relationship with the father, um, it's a bunch of different things. And so what we, what I loved about the organization and what I love about the organization is we are trying to engage uh, with women to help them parent, but not just say, have a baby, say, you know, what are the social services I can connect you to? What are your other needs to support you far beyond having a child and far beyond birth? That's what attracted me to Human Coalition as I continued in this kind of journey. You mentioned the arc, as I continued in this arc to see where my skill set and where my desires both fit. I love the nuance that they have. Man, that's, I mean, that's decently profound. Let's move to this book, uh, Roe, Race, and a Pro-Life Commitment to Justice. There's a lot about, uh, to, a lot to talk about in your new book, Roe, Race, and the Pro-Life Commitment to Justice. There's a lot to unpack here. So let's first unpack the title for me, and why did you write this book? Man, I wrote this book, number one, um, because we're a year after Roe being overturned. And uh, June 24th, 2022, uh, uh, Roe was overturned. Uh, I don't know where you are then. I remember vividly hearing about it, not quite believing it, even though we had a leak, you know, just realizing what this meant for the for the nation or for the country. And I think from a pro-life perspective, there were many in the pro-life movement who uh, over the last year are trying to figure out exactly what does this mean? I think everybody was trying to figure out what does this mean? Uh, on a brass tax level, as you know, I, I don't want to tell the attorney something uh, that he's going to laugh at, but it basically means that the decision for abortion and the rulings on abortion go back down to a state level. And so abortion is still very legal in about 75% of the nation. Um, I think a lot of people didn't realize that. And so the, the reason I wrote the book was, I believe that those who are pro-life, we are entering, we've entered into a, a new fight for life, meaning the the strategies that we had before the golden cow that was roe has been gone but that doesn't mean that abortion is both unnecessary and unthinkable right now how do we as folks who want to advocate for life womb to tomb how do we shift and that goes into the title um roe race and a pro-life commitment to justice i believe that it's imperative that pro-lifers especially engage in issues of justice that may not seem to be directly tied to birth and pro-life because they impact the women and communities and men who are making these decisions to abort. If we don't want people to be vulnerable to abortion, 
and specifically the black community that has higher rates of abortion, we have to engage in racial justice in a way that many pro-lifers have not connected the dots to see how that um, directly impacts the abortions that we want to end. So I'm, I'm pro-choice, but I also know yep. as a black man from the South, a lot of black folks, though they tend to vote democratic, are very pro-life. Yeah. So I'm not blind to the diversity of opinion amongst black folk on this. But walk me through your pro-life journey. Was it always was this always where you stood? Did your views ever change? And have there had they ever been truly challenged where you found yourself at least sympathetic to pro-choice views on abortion? Um, I'll, I'll start from the last part. I, I, I've always been sympathetic. And, and I think that for me. I understand that most people, you know, I have a friend that says that you can't judge entire movements by the loudest voices. Okay, that's a fact. <laughs> and, and, and what it means by that is when you see the loud pro-choicers or the loud pro-lifers and, the, you know, the baby killers or the people who don't care about women, there are a large swath of people in the middle who have varying views and who actually care about people and care about life um, and care about serving people. And they're not the loudest activists, but you wouldn't know it unless you actually engage with people. Mm-hmm. And so I've always understood that most people who, who enter into these decisions don't do so flippantly, don't do so without consideration. And I think you mentioned an important point that uh, the Black community has a very strong pro-life ethic, although we may not use the term pro-life. Um, and so for me, uh, being being a believer, um, being someone who believes that human beings were made in the image and likeness of their creator, um, that human beings have have human dignity and value that is far outside of their ability or their stage of development, all those sorts of things that that is given to them by their creator. I've always believed that uh, there's value in human life womb to tomb. Now, how did I get involved with the pro-life ministry and speaking about these sorts of things? When we had our first child, Bakari, uh, uh, we went and got one of those 3D, 40 ultrasounds. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, really incredible technology. And, you know, I, I had these sentiments before. There was no time when I said, hey, I just want to be involved with this. It wasn't that. But I remember sitting there and um, when we left, my wife, Kirsten, said, you know, I'd love to provide this service for men and women who perhaps can't afford it because insurance didn't cover that, that abortion. You had to actually pay for it. And she said, you know, I don't know how that's going to happen, but I'd love to do that one day. Well, fast forward eight years or so, I was playing for the Baltimore Ravens and we went to a, a meeting and there were two organizations that were actually uh, uh, raising money to provide ultrasounds in pregnancy resource centers, clinics. And I looked at her and she was like, this is it. And so what we started doing was um, providing, paying for um, ultrasounds and training in these centers in places where we live. So we did one in Baltimore, Maryland. We did one in New Orleans, Louisiana. We put one, now we live in Georgia. We did one here. We did one in Rock Hill, South Carolina, down the street from where you you are, um, and a few other places, just to give that service to another woman and man that may be coming in, wondering about their pregnancy, deciding to carry or not, Here's a tool to see the life in the womb. And it comes to find out, come to find out that when you do that and you're in the NFL, it becomes a headline, <laughs> I guess, because most, most people aren't, aren't buying ultrasounds. And so that kind of put me, um, I guess, at the forefront to something that I didn't really ask to be there. This is something that was not political for me. Um, 
you know, it, it was simply how do I serve and care about people? It's the same way my wife and I are involved with human trafficking and the same reason why I stand up and say, you know, uh, black people matter and our lives matter and stand up against racial injustice because to me, this is and always has been a justice issue, which is why even in the title of the book, I say that as pro-lifers, you got to be committed to justice because this is one of those issues for me. You talk about, and I'm, I'm going to jump a little forward because this is a natural transition, but you talk a bit about getting past the political debate and the culture wars around abortion. And I, I'm, I'm stumped kind of, how do you do that? Talk us through how we <laughs> politicize this issue. I, I, you talk about it in, in the book and everything, make it less culturally and make it less culturally salient in your view. Well, it didn't used to be this way. And even in, uh, I, I did a, a documentary a little while ago about abortion and I wish I would have talked to you about it. I wish you would have been in it, but um, I tried to talk to folks who are pro-choice, some folks who are pro-life, some folks in history, politics, um, you know, academia, medicine, just, just to kind of get a view of, of where America stood on this issue. And I came to find out historically that, you know, it wasn't until, you know, the, the 80s or so where, where, where the term pro-life became to be really, really politically charged. And you started to see this sort of divide in politics where, um, you know, you had folks on the right who were pro-life and folks on the left who were pro-abortion and then the pro-choice and how the terminology changed. Uh, it, it used to be one of those issues where you could be a, a, a Democrat and be you know, pro-life, you could be a Republican and be pro-life. It, it wasn't until more more recent history to where there was this divide. And I think that that part of decoupling uh, pro-life from politics is speaking about it in those terms. Also understand that there are a number of, of Democrats who are pro-life. A lot of times we say, oh, if you're a Democrat, you have to be this, or you're Republican, you have to be this. There are people that are Republicans that have pro-choice sentiments and, and vice versa. Um, but also I think that in the church specifically, and I talk about this in the book, for those who are people of faith, in our churches, we have to be willing to engage in what has become a very political and politicized issue in non-political terms. Specifically in the last uh, several elections, there have been people, and I don't know where you attend church, Bakar, and your family, but there have been people who have actually said, you can't be a Christian if you vote for this candidate. You are going, you can't be a Christian if you are pro-choice or pro-life. And while I strongly believe in, um, in the dignity of the human person in the womb, I also don't believe that we can tell somebody out of repentance and faith if they're a, if they're a believer or not. And so I think that churches have a huge role. I mean, in fact, four in 10 women, it's found that four in 10 women who have had abortions attend church regularly. And so I also like to think that it perhaps it's four in 10 men as well, if there's four in 10 women, right. but yet studies have found that abortion is one of the topics that is very seldomly talked about from the pulpit, partially because so many in the church have been impacted by it, you know, even perhaps the pastor. And so we have to be willing in a very politicized culture to say, you know what, when I talk about this issue, just like when I talk about sex or marriage or anything else, how do I try to do that from a purely uh, biblical perspective, following the text, as opposed to succumbing to what the outside and the culture wants to do to rip us apart, to make us adhere to right or left. It's not easy. It's very difficult. I think there are a bunch of different fronts where we, where we have to do that. 
but it is imperative because uh, this issue didn't always used to be that way. We also have to realize that a lot of people who are uh, proclaiming the right or the left personally don't even believe the stance and the platforms that they are projecting. It is it is for their own personal benefit. So it leads me to my next question. So who's your audience for the book and what kind of reception have you gotten from people who may skew pro-choice? Have you engaged with them much at all? What's the what's the life been like with this book? Yeah, well, the book comes about comes out June 20. Um, have had people like you who have been willing that are pro-choice to 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 hear and to talk to me. I think that the book really um lands for everybody in the sense that there is something in there that is gonna make everybody pro-choice and pro-life, I think, uncomfortable, specifically even if you're conservative or progressive. Um, but also there's something some things where you can take hold. My lane is to is again to to, to defend and to proclaim the importance and the value of of children in the womb, preborn children as well as their mothers and fathers, but also to say that there is so much more to this pro-life bucket than just this part of of um, gestation up until birth. And so the primary audience is are those who have pro-life sentiments. As you mentioned, when we first started talking, there are many in the Black community who uh, care about life who wouldn't call themselves necessarily pro-life. And then you have some who are white Republican conservatives who would say, yes, of course I'm pro-life. This book is for them too. It's for, it's for all those people. But also I think the secondary target for me in writing the book was I wanted to give voice to many folks who are, are Black um, people of faith, Black believers, who feel like they don't quite fit in the in the hard right, the conservative, the Republican side because of so many other things outside of abortion, but they also don't quite fit in perhaps uh, the Democratic left because of their yeah. stance on the issue of abortion. Of abortion, and there are a lot of people who don't have voice. And what I saw myself doing, and the reason why I even wrote the book, I mean, there are a bunch of issues, Ricard, that I'm like, I need to write a book on like you know. 10 steps to be a better leader or something that more people want to talk. You know what I'm saying? Like, why, why I want to, why, why I'm writing about this? It's, it's narrow, but it's necessary. And the way you wrote it is palatable. Like it, it doesn't, exactly. when you read it, even if you have an opposing view, you don't feel like you're preaching. You feel like you're learning. And I think that's one of the more important things. Let me ask you this. Um, so as you note in the book with the Dobbs cases, the fight over Roe is, is over. It's now a state by state proposition for pro-life organizations like yours. What's the path forward? Do you honor exceptions like rape, incest, and health of the mother in states where it's otherwise banned? Do you support heartbeat bills, a national ban? What's the path forward in your view? Well, the path forward, I think, is, is always adhering to the idea that abortion is not a solution for anything. And I'm very um, strong, uh, adamant and clear about that. Um, I, I, I don't make um, you know, exceptions, although we, we follow the law. I'm always going to advocate for the child. I'm going to advocate for the mother. But I think that it goes back to even the reason why I got so involved in human coalition, but also in hearing and learning from some of the people that are on the front lines and resource centers is that there's so much that we can do to support life. Uh, one thing I hated, Bakari, um, was I hate when people would say black women are three to four times more likely to have abortion than their white counterparts. And then they would leave it there. They would never say why. Yeah. And, and so, and so on the one hand, you're, you're saying the statistic that, you know, according to whatever 
polling mechanism you use. There's some variance there. But we do know that Black women are more likely to have abortions. But what, what burned me up was the fact that nobody would ever say why, because it's one of two things. It's either you're going to say that Black folks like killing their kids more than anybody else. And that's fine if you want to say that, but just go ahead and say it. Or you have to say there's a reason why this community seems to be more vulnerable to abortion. And what are those reasons and how do we address them? And so when it comes to, you know, what's the path forward, I'm about addressing those issues. And I believe that if we wholeheartedly and sacrificially address them, and it may take people getting outside, outside of their, their party and, and perhaps voting for some things that they may not think <laughs> that they would have, then I think that we turn off the faucet um, and, and provide opportunities for life and human flourishing that didn't exist before. The most important question I'll ask you about this book is, I think you said it comes out June 20th. How can people buy it? Where can people find it? People can buy this book wherever books um, are sold. It's available for pre-order and order on Amazon. There's an audio book. I actually um, narrated the audio book. So did, you find that, did you find that difficult? Because I found that to be the hardest thing I'd ever I done. I found it supremely difficult, dude. <laughs> like the only reason... The only reason I did it, to be honest with you, is because my wife was like, you need to you need to narrate. Your you got to do it. You got to do uh, it. Well, I didn't do it for my other books. I was like, I'm, I'm not doing it. I don't want to do it. I'll get somebody else to do it. And she's like, no, especially with this, you need to go do it. And so when your wife looks at you and like with sincerity tells you to do something, you end up yeah. doing it. So if you don't like my voice, don't get the audio book. Um, <laughs> but I did do the audio book. So it's available on Amazon. Um, it's available at, at your, your brick and mortar stores as well. And it's also available on audio wherever uh, books are sold. Look, I can't let you leave without talking to SEC football just briefly first. And I know you're a UGA guy. That's unfortunate. But <laughs> if you were building a program to beat Kirby, what would that have to look like? <laughs> what would it have to look like? I the Alabama, Jaguars? I mean, <laughs> the Jaguars? Alabama a couple years ago? I mean, yeah. Yeah, perhaps the Jaguars. Um, you know, it would have to be. Look, I had, I had, a, I had a, a coach named Bill Belichick uh, for several years. You know him fairly well. I've yes, heard, heard the name before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and one thing he would always say to us he's, is he wants to have a smart, tough, physical football team that performs well under pressure. A smart, tough, physical football team that performs well under pressure. When we came into training camp, that was what he said our team needed to be, to be about. And that's the way he built our team. And when I look at Georgia's team, Kirby has built a smart, tough, physical football team that performs well under pressure. Well, number and three, so, is, the number three is not fair. I mean, the physicality of the defense and the O-line is, I mean, I don't know where y'all getting these boys from. They're just different. I don't either. But if you're going to beat them, going back to your question, you're going to, I'll tell you what, Ohio State was close. But can you, you know run, what? Can you, can you beat them side to side or do you have to out physical them up and down? The only, I don't know how you're going to out physical them. You, you've seen <laughs> them. You've seen them. And then, and then if you try to beat them on the outside with speed, which Ohio State actually did last year um, in, the, in that game with CJ Stroud and Marvin Hester Jr., they, they stretched the field on Georgia. They broke contain with the quarterback. Um, I think that they, they played a heck of a game. But what happened was that physical defense said, you know what, if we can't keep up with you, we're going to knock you out of the game. And so, <laughs> and so you, so you got to be able to, you got to be able to sustain and not get knocked out of the game. So I don't know, but i tell you this, man, it's, um, 
been exciting to watch, and it's been great to be living in the state of Georgia and covering the, the, the team. That my, is my best, like my best UGA memory was you, you guys had a quarterback from Southwest DeKalb High School by the name of Quincy Carter. You died. Y'all were the number six ranked team in the country or something and came down to maybe y'all were higher than that, came to South Carolina. He threw six interceptions and we carried the goalposts all the way from Williams Bryce Stadium to five points. Beat y'all like y'all. Were you were you on the field carrying the goalpost? Uh, my daddy let me carry a little piece of it. Yeah. Because I was at that game. That was the year I had to sit out. So when I transferred from Georgia, I had to sit out one year and I remember vividly being there and people going crazy and carrying that feet, that goalpost. I thought, I thought Quincy was colorblind. I didn't know what happened. That boy threw he threw it directly in linebacker's stomachs that Dude, game. I, I love Quincy, but I'm gonna tell you the story real quick. Um, from the Red and Black is the newspaper at, U, at Georgia. It's a student newspaper. It's called the Red and Black. And the next week, we we come in and I pick up the Red and Black, the student newspaper, and they have a cartoon of the game. And it's, it's Quincy and a bunch of other football players sitting in the at a lunch table. And one of the players down the, you know, a couple down from him said, Quincy, will you pass the salt? And then in the next frame, he's passing the salt. And it's a South Carolina defender <laughs> intercepting the salt. Dude, it was just, <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was one of them, one of them games. And again, love Quincy. That was a rough yeah, one. I know. The new fight for life. Row, race, and a pro-life commitment to justice. None other than my brother, Benjamin Watson. Thank you for joining the Bakari Sellers Podcast, man. Oh, and shout out to Carol Traver. Hope I pronounced that right. Yeah, you got it. Yeah. All right. All right, brother. Be easy, man. <laughs>